An army reservist is charged with a mass shooting in Maine, and lawmakers vote on whether to keep U.S. troops in Niger. All of that and more today, October 27th, 2023. Good morning, Early Birds. I'm Zimone Perez, and this is the Early Bird Brief, produced by Defense News and Military Times. A quick note, be sure to tune in on Monday for our episode about mental health care for Afghan allies who made it to the United States. We have a developing story first up today. Law enforcement officials have issued an arrest warrant for an Army reservist, charging him in a multi-location mass shooting Wednesday in Maine that left at least 18 people dead and more wounded. Maine State Police said the shooting started at a bowling alley and continued to a restaurant. Governor Janet Mills said law enforcement are doing everything they can to track down the accused shooter. There are still many things we don't yet know about these attacks, but the full weight of my administration is behind law enforcement's efforts to capture the person of interest, Robert Card, to hold whoever is responsible for this atrocity accountable under the full force of state and federal law. An Army spokesman confirmed that Sergeant First Class Robert R. Card II enlisted in December 2002. For more on what we know so far as of this recording, Military Times editor-at-large Todd South joins the episode. Todd, thank you for being here to discuss a very difficult subject. So what more do we know about Card's military service? So Sergeant First Class Robert Card II, a 40-year-old man from Bowdoin, Maine. Uh, he enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserve in 2002. He's been serving ever since. He uh, currently serves at a training facility in Saco, Maine. That's primary duties is to um, use reservists to train West Point military cadets on various uh, soldiering tasks. He um, never had a combat deployment according to his records. He's received a lot of the uh, standard awards that one would receive for the time he's been in, you know, an Army Achievement Medal, a reserve component achievement medal, a humanitarian service medal, and of course the National Defense Army service ribbons, which are fairly common. Um, his MOS or military occupational specialist or job is as a petroleum specialist, basically fueling vehicles. That's basically what we know right now officially. It's all directly from the Army. And has anyone who served with him talked with the media about him? Yes, a couple of fellow reservists uh, spoke with CNN earlier today, Thursday. Um, one who uh, did offer his name, a man named Clifford Steves from Massachusetts, actually joined the service around the same time as CARD, and they served in multiple locations on different reservist uh, training and, and deployments, uh, mostly stateside, from what he told CNN. He kind of described CARD as a, a very outdoorsy kind of guy. There's a lot of photos police have shared of him out fishing and, and doing outdoor things. His friend Steves uh, called him a, a, quote, skilled marksman. He's one of the best shooters in his unit, and that he'd had, of course, firearms and navigation training. And he said that, quote, he would uh, be very comfortable in the woods. Kind of your basic, probably basic soldier skills training, um, you know, land navigation marksman training are pretty common for pretty much any soldier reserve guard or active duty. Just a note, after we spoke with Todd, a Department of Veterans Affairs spokesperson told us that CARD is not enrolled in or using VA healthcare. He used VA education benefits in 2004, but he has not used or applied for any other VA benefits since. Another important story, though a heads up to our listeners, the story does discuss the topic of suicide. The Defense Department released its latest data on deaths by suicide, and Military Times Pentagon Bureau Chief Megan Myers joins the episode with more details. So Megan, did the number of deaths by suicide decrease or increase in the calendar year 2022? 
So technically, the number of deaths did decrease. The number in 2022 was 492. That was down a little bit from 524. But overall, the suicide rate, which is the number of deaths per 100,000, that's what the Pentagon really keeps close track of. That held pretty steady. It was up 3% in the active duty um, and down by 12% for the reserve and 18% for the guard, which sounds significant, but statistically, they don't consider that a big swing. The reason why they, they look more at the rate versus the number of deaths, right, is because the size of the military can fluctuate year over year. And this year, the military got a little smaller. So is the suicide rate attributable to any specific Pentagon policies? Are officials attributing it to any specific policies? They don't. And actually, you know, what they would like to see, right, because they put so much so much effort, so much manpower behind making changes and improving the suicide rate, but, you know, they, would, they don't want it to see it hold steady. They want to see it get better. But over the 11 years that they've been tracking these rates, um, despite all of the, the myriad programs they've put together, um, they haven't really seen anything that would show that there's been a big shift in how service members are dealing with suicides. Are there any specific demographic or service or military component breakdowns that, you know, stood out to you that said, oh, this group might be, you know, dealing with this issue at a larger rate or a smaller rate than average? I wouldn't say stood out only because this has been very consistent, but there are some, you know, there are some data points um, that we know about what military suicides look like. It's usually men, um, young men under 25. The Army has the most. Uh, the Navy tends to have the fewest. Often it is young, single, or sometimes service members who are going through some sort of relationship issue, but like young, haven't deployed, who end up taking their own lives. And so it's never really been attributed to any sort of combat stress or anything like that. It's mostly attributed to, you know, what's going on in this person's personal life and then how they're able to access resources within the military. But then also, are there any future changes that the Pentagon has discussed, you know, that could potentially help lower that rate or the total number of suicides in the future? Yes. So they are always, you know, always working on it. There's always new programs. But earlier this year, an independent review commission reported their findings after looking top to bottom on the Defense Department's suicide prevention programs and infrastructure. They had lots of recommendations and the Pentagon is working to adopt a lot of them. Many of them are just getting more healthcare providers. That has been an issue. If you have decided you want to reach out to someone, um, if you are not in crisis, then it is difficult to get an, an, that behavioral health appointment. It sometimes can be weeks. But the other things that they're looking into are, you know, better, better training for leadership and also a lot of firearms safety education and training because firearms account for almost 70% of deaths, of suicide deaths um, among members of the military and their dependents, their spouses versus in the civilian population, it's about 50%. Thank you for discussing this issue, Megan. And we would just like to let you know if you are a service member, veteran or family member in need of help right now, you can dial 988 to reach a counselor at the 24-hour suicide and crisis lifeline. Kosovo is now at the center of the latest efforts by lawmakers to get toxic exposure and burn pit relief to veterans. Today, our armed forces joined our NATO allies in airstrikes against Serbian forces responsible for the brutality in Kosovo. We have acted with resolve for several reasons. 
We act to protect thousands of innocent people in Kosovo from a mounting military offensive. You might remember that's where the U.S. conducted airstrikes and a peacekeeping mission in the 1990s. Now some senators want Veterans Affairs officials to look at military toxic exposure injuries for troops who served in Kosovo in the late 90s and beyond. Senators yesterday unanimously adopted an amendment to their VA appropriations plan that would mandate a new department review of toxic exposure risks for those who served in Kosovo. Here's why it matters. The move could potentially pave the way for benefits for thousands of veterans who applied to the Central European country over the last few decades. Their concerns over potential effects of toxic smoke and burn pits used to dispose of waste and other materials. For some context, you might remember last year that Congress voted on historic legislation to expand veterans' disability benefits, in part to help those affected by burn pit fumes in Iraq and Afghanistan. The legislation expanded benefits for 12 types of cancers and 12 other respiratory illnesses linked to toxic smoke in specific areas of operations. But Kosovo was not among places where long-term respiratory illnesses and cancers were presumably linked to military duties. At least 25,000 active duty and National Guard troops have deployed to Kosovo over the last 20 years. The new language would require the VA to collect and report on air quality findings in the region, uh, sickness and mortality reports on veterans who serve there, and also potential changes to department rules that would better assist affected individuals. But the measure still faces a long legislative path before becoming law. The VA budget bill is being considered with other federal spending measures, and the House would have to reconsider the issue during negotiations with the Senate because its plan did not include any similar provision. Also on your radar for today, U.S. troops have been in Niger to conduct counterterrorism operations, but you might remember after a military coup toppled the West African country's democratically elected leader in July, the U.S. mission has been in a holding pattern. A handful of senators introduced the bill to remove U.S. troops from the country. Defense News Capitol Hill reporter Brian Harris joins the episode to discuss this. So Brian, how did the vote yesterday go? What did lawmakers end up deciding. Right. So the bill was introduced by Senator Rand Paul, and basically it was a resolution that would have required President Joe Biden to withdraw the uh, roughly 1,100 troops that are currently stationed in Niger. Only 11 senators voted with Paul, so um, more than 80 senators voted against it, uh, which means they essentially voted in favor to keep U.S. troops in Niger to continue pursuing counterterrorism operations despite the coup that occurred a few months ago. Yeah, so they vote down this piece of legislation saying they want to keep troops in the country, but the U.S. government is simultaneously saying, well, we need to punish them on paper by calling this a coup, which stems the flow of money to the country. Because once you declare another country's government to have had a coup, there are all sorts of legal parameters that stem that flow of money. And the State Department did that, right? But what are lawmakers thinking the mission will be of these troops since they voted to keep them in the country? I mean, will they be working with these coup leaders? Or are they going to try and operate as independently as they can on counterterrorism efforts? There have been a lot of reports about not just in Niger, but in Africa, the U.S. military training a lot of these foreign military leaders who go on to participate or even lead these coups. In Niger, uh, one of the key players was the former um, commander of um, Niger's Special Operation Forces, who is now um, the 
Niger's chief of defense in the junta. So, you know, Sanders did vote to continue U.S. troop presence here despite the coup. That said, you know, at least according to them, they don't have a whole lot of appetite to work with the junta. Um, I spoke to uh, Senator Ben Cardin, the foreign relations chairman, um, earlier this week before the vote, and he argued that he thought we should keep U.S. troops there. That's why he voted against the resolution and led the opposition to it to pursue counterterrorism missions. At the same time, he doesn't think we should be aiding and abetting the junta. One idea he proposed in the brief hallway interview I did with him was um, individual sanctions against junta leaders. That said, at the end of the day, the junta controls Niger. And as we saw a few weeks ago, they kicked out French forces. So, you know, if the U.S. were to go forward with sanctions, for instance, uh, you know, they could raise our own objections to letting the U.S. continue host their forces there. Yeah, and I guess the initial thing that struck me is, are there fears this brings legitimacy to the coup? I mean... Like we've talked about, the coup leaders are American-trained soldiers who were trained in the ways of being a military in a democratic society. So are there fears that it brings legitimacy to this group of coup plotters? Yeah, I mean, I think the senators who voted in favor of it would probably argue that. But again, that was only 11 of them. Um, You know, it's worth noting the State Department itself did officially designate this as a coup a few weeks ago, which cuts off most U.S. security assistance. Um, That said, most of the troops there are stationed there, have been stationed there since 2013 under the 2001 authorization for use of military force which Congress passed after more than two decades ago, after 9-11, to go after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Um, That's since been used in dozens of countries across the world for counterterrorism operations, including Niger. And the uh, one argument that Senator Paul made in his resolution was that the 2001 military authorization does does not cover the Niger troop presence. It should not go unnoticed that Congress never voted to send troops to Niger in the first place. Presidents of both parties have used the September 11, 2001, authorization to use military force to justify war in dozens of countries, from Afghanistan to Libya to Syria to Somalia to Yemen. Niger is but one of over 20 countries that the U.S. conducts military operations in, supposedly justified by the 9-11 authorization to use military force. However, obviously, the, it was voted down, So, but that, that is an argument that supporters of this resolution have brought forward, too. Bryant, thank you for stopping by the podcast. And now, here's some other stories that we are hearing chirps about. In Georgia, the Army's Fort Gordon will be renamed Fort Eisenhower today. It's one of the nine new military bases getting a new name because they were originally named for Confederate leaders. ABC reported the mother of soldier Travis King, who was charged by the Army with desertion for crossing into North Korea this summer, said her family plans to, quote, fight the charges and fight the charges hard, end quote. The Defense Department announced an additional security package for Ukraine, valued at up to $150 million. The new aid is through funding Congress previously approved. And the U.S. and China appear to be restarting dialogue between their militaries. The U.S. is sending someone to represent the Defense Department at an international forum in Beijing. And on this day in history, in 1962, 
Air Force Major Rudolf Anderson Jr. was shot down in a spy plane during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Two Soviet surface-to-air missiles rocketed into the sky as his U-2 reconnaissance aircraft entered Cuban airspace. One exploded near the U-2 and shrapnel pierced the cockpit, Anderson's flight suit, and helmet. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Todd South, The Associated Press, Megan Myers, Leo Shane III, and Bryant Harris. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruse. Have a great day.